Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Hello, and welcome to High Theory. Today, we are talking with Jack Gieseking about a queer space. Jack, before we begin, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Hi, this is Jack Changisking. I use they and he pronouns. I'm a research fellow at the Five College Women's Studies Research Center. I'm an environmental psychologist and geographer. I recently wrote a book called A Queer New York, Geographies of Lesbians, Dykes, and Queers. And that book really focuses on the 80s to the OOs, from AIDS to the L word. How did we find and meet and connect to one another as les, bi, queer, trans, gender nonconforming people? And how do we not, how do we come together? How do we fall apart? And how did that change over time in the city with a really close focus on how gentrification shaped les queer life and how we shape gentrification in New York City? And now I'm working on a book on dyke bars called Dyke Bars, Asterisk, Queer Spaces for the End Times. And all of my work looks at how queer and trans people find one another and connect to one another and make space. Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming to High Theory. The idea of queer space really is a through line through both your projects. So let me ask you, what the heck is a queer space? (laughs) That's what everybody wants to know. You know, it's funny because we were picking a term. So thank you for letting me do this kind of dual bounded term that exists in this way. Because it's unusual in that it is a term or a way of thinking in popular culture and in academic writing. But to really understand it, you need to take it apart as both the queer and the space and see how they come together. So the queer, first of all, arose as an identity. And much older people and younger people have some discomfort in using it, people of all ages, really. With older people, it's people who came out before this word was reclaimed, or they came out and live in a place where it was not reclaimed. The reclamation of the term from being a derogatory term happened really during the 80s, the early years of the HIV AIDS movement and epidemic, and saying, if you're going to call us queer, fine, we'll be queer. That's, you know, we're going to take it back. 
the younger people have a discomfort with it too. And anyone who teaches knows that when you try to get a lot of young people to say queer, they get, oh gosh, am I allowed to say that word? Mm. And yes, yeah, we should say this word if you're not saying it in a derogatory way. And then queer became an umbrella term, which some people love and some people want to, it makes them want to claw their face off, but really kind of encompassing les bi to some people trans gay identities in a way that could be this kind of do-it-all term it doesn't work for everyone but it's kind of has that place in queer theory and queer theory really built from queer activism in the early 90s when it arrives and you know queer first of all is saying okay we reject binaries what feminism was doing all along too mm. but queer is saying hey we need to recognize that we're fluid we're in flux that's who we are and how we are in the world. And they're really anti-normative. And so any kind of whatever is normal is going to be rejected or assimilated in that way. And so at best, it's this great opening up of the anti-normal, the other possibilities of life. And at the worst, it's this constant rejecting of whatever has been commodified and assimilated. And it's a lot of work and effort to keep doing that. So that's where the, the queer starts. When we were talking about doing this episode, I remember that we talked a little bit about what part of speech the word queer is for us. Yes. For, yeah. So I'm wondering if you could, on the one hand, use queer as a verb. So do queer space or queering space, let's say, mm-hmm. and queer as decidedly an adjective or like spaces that are queer through history, let's say. So I'm just wondering what the tensions and conversations are between those two concepts in your work. Yeah, I think when you're thinking of queer as the noun, as the person, queer as the verb, and also the adjective for a kind of space, queer also really gets around just like a lot of queer people. And I think that's something it prides itself in. It's thinking about as a verb and queering to take apart what you assume to be a set rule, a structure, that this is how the world works. There's really beautiful work by Jill Valentine, who's a geographer from the late 80s, early 90s, saying, yeah, there's actually a way of heterosexing space that's been going on forever. And then what comes after this kind of queering space is pushing against like what is supposed to be the way we do things, the way we operate. I remember early in my 20s, a friend said that she was hanging out with a guy. So obviously they were on a date. And I was like, how would you even know that? It's so confusing to me. And my, you know, when I was, I identified as a woman in my 20s, going on dates with other women being like, am I on a date? I have no freaking idea. I'm supposed to ask her out to coffee. Right. Am I going to coffee or did like, it's just a date. So like, I think they're intertwined with one another and they co-produce one another. Mm. Yeah. And I think queer theory obviously is really devoted to, I think the last part of it, too, is that it requires us to look at sexuality. So it's arising out of this time, eight or nine years post Barner conference as a term saying, you know, I know Gail Rubin said gender, sex, sexuality, these are different things, but we actually need to take account of sexuality and sensuality and desire romance Mm. in the work that we're doing, or it's, it's not that rigorous. It's not that well done. Keeping this in mind. How have you used queer space in your own work? And also, you know, how have your interlocutors used queer space in their lives? Oh, yeah. Well, I think space for me and like, what is space? Because people just assume, but it's obviously the where of our lives or 
the place we connect, like the spaces of embodiment. And it's like where we matter, where matter happens. It doesn't even have to be we as a human. It could be non-human in any way. And I love Henri Lefebvre's social production of space, right. um, yeah. where David Harvey does the better version, I think, because the translation of Lefebvre is, is tragic and very difficult to memorize and understand. But Lefebvre is saying space is all at once perceived, conceived, and lived. There's the perception of symbols and design and looks and acts and practices. And there's the conceived, the actual design and what we put into it. And finally, how we live it. Right. I point this out because space is so different than place. Place is very Cartesian in this actual like location, while space, especially queer space, is a little bit more vague, which queerness likes, and it opens up so many other possibilities. Queer space is a central tenet to what queer theory is always doing, and a central kind of space that I think is part of geography, whether or not all geographers are accounting for it, because queerness itself is always asserting a place of existence and it's asserting it through the where like the greatest chance of queer movements have been we're here we're queer get used to it right out of the bars and into the streets it's about being embodied being like seen and this hails from this visibility movement mm. and the original definition of queer space that we get is from halberstam in 2005 in in a queer time and space jack halberstam does this really beautiful long work writing about queer time and then has this very short summary of queer space. And it says, it's a place where queer people gather, right? Or it's a, a gathering of queer people. And we fall back on that definition a lot. Mm. The other thing that happens is that you get a lot of really brilliant queer theory writing about, mostly about queer time, like the really great work that I love. Like space, actually, I feel it gets overlooked a lot in queer theory. And you get a ton about queer time. Jack Halberstam for those unfamiliar with it, saying queer people cannot live their lives on a heteronormative rhythm about if you want to have a baby, if you can have a baby, when you transition, don't transition, detransition, when you figure out what your sexuality is, who you're attracted to. These things are very differently structured than this kind of like supposedly normal suburban framework. Mm. And so you get really brilliant work since then, like something like Temporal Drag and Elizabeth Freeman and so many other scholars. And queer space just gets kind of labeled liminal or in flux. Mm. It's kind of this, all these terms that you could point out for in-betweenness right. get used again and again. And so what I try to do in my book, and I think that this is happening, I think many people are working on this too, is like, what other words can we use to define queer space that open up our imaginaries about what queer spaces are mm. beyond just visibility politics. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I think people love queer space because it seems really cool because queer people are really cool and they're like, you know, they're really into good music and they're, they dress really well or something. And I don't like, I'd also think about lesbian potlucks. I'm just wearing all flannel right now. I don't know if all, well, not all flannel, there's also denim, but you know, this kind of stereotypical certain kind of gay male, very pretty idea of what a queer space is, is quite fabulous and full of boas and celebration. And it's actually, you know, much more multiple and interesting and can contain so much, and does contain so much politics, different kinds of socialization, different kinds of relationship and kinship formations. Mm. And it's about survival too. Mm. I think, you know, what you just said about a space hosting the formation of identity, hosting the formation of kinship, but also a space having a kind of index of a certain kind of political utopianism, let's say. Mm -hmm. I really want to know, 
about your upcoming book, which is about a very particular kind of yeah. place, which is the lesbian in New York, which is a vanishing institution. Keeping that in mind, let me ask you my final question, which is how will queer space save the world? Just that. Well, okay. I think first thing, since it is about dyke bars as queer spaces for the end times, I've been thinking a lot about how our fixation on queer space is like, I love this index for political utopianism is yes, sums it up so perfectly. I appreciate that. As I think there's a real kind of multiplicity and complexity and richness to the spaces we assume to work in a certain way. And part of that's because we don't have access to our history. When I say we, I mean LGBTQITS2 folks, right? And on and on. And we're constantly kind of trying to create it. And we wind up going into archives and archives are based in places. And so we get local gay histories and then people write local gay histories and they kind of get projected onto the rest of uh, like whatever happened in Buffalo, especially the first lesbian histories written in Buffalo. And so many people think the 1950s was like how it was in Buffalo. Um, mm. And based on what people say that books, Boots of Leather, Slippers of Gold by Kennedy and Davis and has a lot to do with dyke bars. So I really got wildly frustrated after I wrote my book, all these journalists reached out to me and they only wanted to talk about lesbian bars because there's less than two dozen lesbian bars in the United States left. There's one in the United Kingdom. Mm. There's just a handful in Canada and there's pocketfuls of handfuls of lesbian bars in the rest of the world. A lot of it has to do with like, well, what is a lesbian bar? You know, like there are a lot of bars that a lot of lesbians hang out in. Are they lesbian bars? Do they have to be lesbian owned? A lot of people don't want to use the word lesbian because they don't want to identify with TERFs, trans exclusionary radical feminists. Some of them really reclaim the word lesbian in order to take it away from TERFs, which I'm a big fan of. Yeah. There's also a narrative that was being reproduced that was frustrating me about lesbian bars as always dying, as being part of death. And my friend Mary Sullivan just wrote a beautiful book called Lesbian Death about how lesbian identity and lesbian people are always framed in their absence and their death and dying. And so I think the Dyke Bars book is rethinking about what we call a dyke bar, what we count as a dyke bar, using the trans asterisk to really open up not just like lesbian bars of the 50s, which were mostly white spaces, but critically thinking about how uh, rent parties or dollar parties where you would pay a couple of dollars to go to a house and be served food and party all night and share alcohol, which were often how a lot of Black women made money. Mm. and we're really big gathering spaces for Black women, how those spaces are talked about, but not talked about as quintessential dyke bars. So what if we open up the idea of what a dyke bar is? Like, what if we count tea rooms and cafes where dykes are meeting in Shanghai with a little flag on the table because they can't actually gather in the same place more than once? What is a dyke bar? What does it mean to us? You know, what if we put everything in there and call it a dyke bar? And also then we take it apart. What are the spaces and the functions that we needed to meet for us? Mm. What are we not asking enough of the world? How do we fight for it? So I think how could queer space change the world? Wow, man, I really saved cis straight people from doing a lot of things they don't like to do, although that shouldn't be the priority, obviously. It's uh, fun and enjoyable. It pushes you to your limits to constantly have to accept new parts of yourself, to be curious about new parts of yourself to accept people different from you or like you mm. or hear things you don't want to get used to. So I think there's a lot of democracy, the kind of democracy we like going on in some queer spaces, even in moments mm. that pushes forward a better 
political world for for LGBTQ people, but for everyone too. I love that formulation of yours. What are we not asking enough of the world, and how do we fight for it? I think that's that's amazing. Yeah. That's, that's a great yeah. note to end on. I think. Yeah. Jack, thank you so much for coming to High Theory and talking about a queer space. Absolutely. I hope everyone gets to one really soon and gives them their money and their support. They all need it. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage your social media presence. Julia Arian Martins edits our transcripts. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. And Kim Adams and Sharonic Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day. 